Hey everyone, what's going on? Welcome to a brand new edition of the Sambasale Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And right now I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Hope everyone is having a wonderful Monday so far. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend and is ready to kick off the next couple of days ahead. A lot of stuff that I want to talk about that happened over the last couple of days. I'm of course going to be getting into the oh-so-subtle Golden Globes this weekend. Weren't aired, weren't live streamed, but they did hand out their winners. So I'll get into that and what it means for the Oscar season, especially this year, since the Globes don't have the shine that they usually do. I'm also going to be talking about the first reactions to the highly anticipated fifth installment in the Scream franchise that is kicking off its release this week. I'm also going to be getting into some new comments Ben Affleck has made in regards to his time playing Batman and so much more. But the first thing that I do need to get into right now is some tragic news that I feel like I always unfortunately have to start the show with this and it always happens over the weekend but especially this weekend there were there were a lot of heavy hearts that came over the last couple of days a lot of of tragic passings that happened and the first one that I do have to kick off with since it's so fresh in our minds is one that happened not less than 24 hours ago and that was the unfortunate tragic surprising passing of Bob Saget who was a wonderful great comedian who died too suddenly and taken too too soon from from any of us if you know him he was somebody that was on the full house franchise of course he was the the, the straight ace lace dad that everyone knew and loved and felt and really really enjoyed watching in those shows i really actually first was introduced to bob saget not personally but seeing him on a television screen was when he actually played himself in Entourage. And I didn't know if that's exactly how Bob Saget was, but getting more into his work, into what he did, his resume, what he did was absolutely incredible and endeared so many people and was just a, a great comedian. And uh, as, as tragic as and, and sad as all these passings are, I think this one hits the hardest with a lot of people because Bob Saget was somebody who wasn't too old. He was in his 60s and he was still performing he was still doing what he loved. Literally hours beforehand, he tweeted out that he finished wrapping up one of the comedy shows that he was doing, I believe, in Florida. And he was going on this uh, on this tour throughout the state, throughout the areas, and to, to just do comedy shows and make people laugh. And so, again, it wasn't like this was something that was a, a long time coming or was inevitable, but it was really sad and, 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 and very, very, very upsetting to, to really hear. And... Uh, Again, my heart goes out to the friends and the family uh, of Bob Saget. There's been a lot of great outpouring of love and support for him. And the other ones that happened prior to Bob Saget over the weekend was just as sad. But again, because these other ones lived fuller lives, and I'm talking about Sidney Poitier, the the late great, one of the greatest actors of all time in, in Mr. Poitier, who was 94 years old, and then Peter Bogdanovich, who was 82 years old and was a well-known director, you could say at least that as sad as their passings are, they're up there in age. It, it, it was, it, it, it's expected to come with old age when you die, but with someone like Bob Saget, it's incredibly tough, but you remember what he did. And, and the same thing with Sidney Poitier and Peter Bogdanovich. You remember the great legacies that, that they left behind, and especially somebody like Sidney Poitier, who was a 
a, a trailblazer, somebody who was a great activist, but somebody who really led to change within the industry of Hollywood and, and really helped diversify the Hollywood at that time period and what he was able to do in so many of his uh, in his terrific movies and his terrific performances what he was able to give in every single one was truly remarkable he was just he was full of of so many different layers he could do comedies he he could do dramas he could do crime thrillers and action films he could really do it all and he was just amazing and everything that he did he, he he led in so many different landmarks that you didn't see before in hollywood and he was really kind of the barrier pusher that brought that to the forefront and he helped bring in new waves of of creative talent especially people of color and when you look at the people that we talk about today that we consider the greats like a Denzel Washington a Halle Berry Oprah Winfrey and people like Ava DuVernay and so many others that felt empowered because of what Sidney Poitier brought to the screen and people like Whoopi Goldberg as well and that he helped lead them to prosperity in the careers that they have today and so he was just somebody that touched so many different people on so many different levels and he, again, somebody who will truly be missed, but again, 94 years old, lived an absolutely full life. And the same thing with, with Peter Bogdanovich, again, a, a terrific director. And, and, and when you look at 70s, 80s cinema, he's definitely somebody that spearheaded the charge there. Again, just really sad to see all of these passings happen. But again, you remember the person that they were, you remember the work that they did and how they affected and and, and helped so many different lives. And it's probably in inspired so many people to either be comedians or be performers or be directors and lay down the groundwork. So even though they're gone, they're certainly not forgotten and their legacies will live on for so many different generations to come. But again, it is sad to talk about and report the the passings and deaths of Sidney Poitier, who was 94 years old, Peter Bogdanovich, who was 82 years old, and Bob Saget, who passed away yesterday on Sunday. And now moving away from honoring those great legacies, I want to move into some other things that I want to talk about on the podcast today. And I'm going to start off with talking about a a television show that I actually watched over the last couple of days. And if you see my Twitter, you know the show that I'm talking about. It's this brand new HBO Max limited series based off of this Canadian book that came out a while ago. It's called Station Eleven, and I'm not going to get into it too much because I think one of the great things about this show that I kind of did was just kind of going cold and experience it for myself. But the general synopsis of it basically is it takes place in, in, in around this pandemic time, and, and it very much does hit home, especially with what we're dealing with right now. But it basically follows the lives of these people after this. This, this flu comes in and, and affects the world. And it's about these people who are trying to survive within this new world that comes with it. And it very much plays like in a post-apocalyptic world. However, it, it, it's more than just that. And very and some episodes do deal with this, this, this flu strain that they're dealing with and it changes the world and we're very much dealing with it right now. But a lot of it doesn't focus on that and so much more as it is about the people and 
and and talking about humanity and 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 the characteristics you have and and what do you do with your life if you survive something like this and you live in in a brand new world and how do you make a new world for yourself in the wake of such devastation and i think it's more about that and the characters than it is about other post-apocalyptic events like you see in something like the the walking dead it feels very much more to me kind of like a a last of us in a way where that very much has some some things that are being dealt with in a post-apocalyptic world but it's about the humans that are living within that world and i think very much that is what station 11 does it has some terrific performances throughout it but again i highly recommend it it's a limited series it's at nine episodes right now the finale is coming out this thursday so it'll be 10 episodes in total but i highly recommend looking at it giving it giving it a check out and again Again, don't look up anything about it. Just kind of go in cold, experience it for yourself because it really is a terrific show. It has amazing plot lines and, and, and it interweaves different moments and, and all these different characters that could very well just unravel on, on itself. But they do a very good job in connecting all these different storylines together to make it come to a head and what we're going to get with the finale this this Thursday. So really enjoy the the, the writing. It very much is a, a slower paced story and and a slow paced show there's not a lot of action but if you're invested in the world and in these characters i think you will very much care about this show and that's what that's what got me hooked onto it and i couldn't get enough of it i binged all the episodes that were on hbo max and i highly recommend checking out station 11 if you do want to check it out and if you do when you give it a chance to as well now moving on from that into the thing that i usually talk about to start off the week but I had to get those two things out of the way first. And that, of course, is recapping this weekend's box office. And this is really actually technically the first true weekend of the new year. I know we had Saturday and Sunday were the first two days of 2022, but with Friday was December 31st last week. And and this is really kind of the first legitimate weekend that we have in 2022. And with it came a brand new release in the 355, which we'll talk about in, in a little bit. But Nothing really crazy happened at the box office this weekend, except for the one that came in at the number one spot once again for the fourth and possibly final time with what's coming out this upcoming weekend in Spider-Man No Way Home, which once again took in a really good number, especially because of everything that's going on right now with Omicron and and, and different variants and COVID spiking once again. It still drew in this weekend, 33 million additional dollars, just 41% from from last Last weekend, which it grossed, it now has $668 million domestically, $867 million internationally for a worldwide total of $1.5 billion. Yes, that's with a B, not an M. It is a, hundred, a, a, mil, a billion and a half dollars that this film has been able to make in its run. And again, it's very impressive because of all the surrounding the surrounding circumstances that this film has in front of it, and it's still making this kind of money. People are still going to the theaters and are, are, are implying with the COVID regulations that they have, feel comfortable going to the theaters and seeing this film over and over and over again. And a lot of this is because of repeat viewings. People want to continue to go see this movie over and over and over again, check anything that they might have missed the first time or second time that they saw it. I know my brother and his friends are going to see it in, in, in the next couple of days for the second time. 
time of their viewing because they want to check certain things out that they didn't get a chance to see the first time. So people, this is very much playing like a pre-pandemic level kind of a film. And again, showcases that if you put out the right movie at the right time that has this kind of cinematic experience, people will go to the theaters multiple times if they feel safe enough to do so. And it appeals to demographics that feel safe enough to go to the movie theaters. And along with raking in this this kind of money this weekend, it also, once again, surmounted expectations because it, uh, prognosticators had it around $30 million, but it made $3 million more than what people thought it would this weekend. And it also broke a couple of other milestones on its way to box office supremacy. It is now the sixth highest grossing film domestically of all time. It jumped ahead of Titanic and Jurassic World, and it is now $10 million short from crossing another MCU film, and that being Avengers Infinity War at $678 million. So this movie is without a doubt trying to do some incredible, incredible things at the moment and see if it can, seeing if it can really kind of top anything else and it still has a couple more films to go. It still would have to cross Black Panther at $700 million, Avatar at $760, Avengers Endgame at $858, and then Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens still has a number one spot at $936 million. And when you look at the pacing of where Spider-Man No Way Home is and where The Force Awakens was in 2015, No Way Home is falling a little bit short of keeping pace with it. So I don't necessarily think it's going to eclipse The Force Awakens. I don't don't even necessarily think it might be able to eclipse Avatar, but Black Panther, Avengers Infinity War might be in play. I, I think it'll probably cross Infinity War's mark this weekend, depending on, on what happens because we are having a new screen film come out. It's going to take away from some of the demographic. Even though it's rated R, you get the younger demographic. They love horror films. They You might take away from some of those. So it's going to be very interesting to see the first true competition that No Way Home really has since debuting on December 17th, what it's really going to do. And is it going to fall a little bit shorter because $10 million, like it's still seeing No Way Home making 20 to $15 million next weekend. That'll very much get it over the, the hump of to the number five spot. Black Panther, Avatar could be maybe a little bit more difficult at hand than say some of the other records that it's been able to break. But it also was able to become the eighth highest grossing film of all time. We're worldwide and again it just showcases that people really love checking out this movie they love what they're what they're seeing and they want to come back for more and it's a matter of how far can this movie go when you're looking at the overall records and again it's eclipse fury 7 and frozen 2 and the avengers now it has to accomplish maybe getting out of that billion and a half mark trying to get to a billion and six or maybe even two billion dollars which i don't think is possible it might be able to eclipse lion king and jurassic world since those are at 1.6 but again like can it get to 700 million dollars domestically can no way home get to 2 billion i don't think so and especially since what's remarkable about this is that it has not gone through the chinese market yet and i don't know if it's going to do that and i think it might need to have that support if it would even want to think about sniffing 200 or not 200 but 2 billion dollars at the box office but 1.5 uh, you can't sneeze at that whatsoever it's still one of the most accomplished financial successes in hollywood history and it will go down in that sense especially again in the 
the pandemic times that we're in right now. But again, for Spider-Man No Way Home, this is a a major, major win. And every weekend, it's been able to showcase that people were expecting with the Omicron variant that the ticket prices would plummet after the first weekend or two maybe of seeing this movie. But it's been able to sustain itself and it's been able to have a sustainable steady drop from time to time and especially where there's no competition it's been doing fairly well for itself so again the next couple of weeks especially this weekend it'll be fairly fairly interesting to see if the film can have can sustain itself with some competition this weekend and i think the next couple weekends will be interesting because after scream there's really nothing else that i think could really challenge no way home for the next couple weeks so maybe scream is the champ for uh, definitely this weekend i could see it being and then the following weekend i could see maybe scream taking the number one spot again but after that very much so I could see Spider-Man No Way Home taking the reins once again because when you look at what's coming out in in the rest of this of January after Scream, there's not a whole lot after it. And then when you get into February, maybe Jackass Forever could do it. I mean, maybe Marry Me with the power star power of Jennifer Lopez potentially. If if, if those are the ones that don't do it, it could be Tom Holland once again that reclaims the spot from No Way Home if it regains it from Scream once again after it's in theaters for a couple weeks so uh, spider-man no way home could take a little bit of a dive from being the crown champion but then could rise back up to that depending on what happens with the legs of this new screen film that's coming out this thursday but again for no way home either way these are just incredible record-breaking numbers that i'm sure the theatrical business the hollywood they're all hoping to see these come back to form this year starting this year and and continuing to trudge along in the years to come and then just to kind of quickly glow go over the rest of the the top 10 real quick coming in at number two again was sing Two with 11.9 million dollars and now has 109 million dollars domestically 81 million dollars internationally for a worldwide accumulation of 190 million dollars which is nothing to really kind of sneeze at especially since sing Two is now on premium video on demand so if you're at home you can check this one out for uh, for a charge but people and families are still going to theaters they're still checking this one out and even though it's not going to catch the the box office numbers of the first thing in pandemic times right now it is breaking records and it, it is the first animated film to break a hundred million dollars domestically since frozen 2 did it in 2019 so again it showcases that a demographic and a market that studios were a little, little hesitant on is coming back to form right now and very much could be a sustainable business in the next couple of months going into the new year and we could see more films, family films, start coming back and maybe will go away from streaming, hinting, hinting at a story I'm going to be talking about in a little bit or getting off of the VOD day and date release for streaming to theaters. We could very much see these movies go back to theatrically exclusive only because the market is getting a lot better because children are getting vaccinated and families, specifically parents, are feeling more comfortable bringing their kids to the theaters. So we'll see where it goes. But even though these aren't the 
same numbers as the first thing. I think they are very respectable numbers in the times we're in right now. And I think Universal is very confident and, and happy about the results they're seeing for this film right now. And then moving over to number three, speaking of Universal, they're probably not so happy with this debut, but I'm sure there's a reason they put this movie out on the first weekend of the new year. And that is the brand new female spy film, The 355, which grows $4.8 million at the box office. And that's the only gross that it has had. It has not had any international grosses or releases as of right now. It's only been here in the United States. And that's not a great start for this movie that has not done well critically. It has underperformed with its projections, including the fact that it does have a A-list roster on its hands with Jessica Chastain, Lupita Nyong'o, Diane Kruger, you have Penelope Cruz in there as well, Sebastian Stan. It's it's, it's an amazing, amazing list, but it's just, it doesn't seem like it's enough. And this is another one where Universal may be eating it a little bit with the theaters. However, it might be able to do something with the with the numbers on on streaming. So we'll see what happens with this movie. But again, not a great start for the 355 in theaters. And then just going over the rest of the list, coming in at number four is The Kingsman, grossing another $3.2 million at the box office and now is $25 million domestically, a international total of $49 million and a worldwide total of $74 million. Then coming in at number five is American Underdog with $2.4 million that now has $18 million domestically and is still staying at $18 million worldwide as it has not been released anywhere else in international markets. Then coming at number six is Matrix Resurrections, which grossed another $1.8 million and now has $34 million domestically, $90 million internationally for a worldwide total of $124 million. And then rounding out the last couple of spots, number seven is West Side Story with $1.4 million and now has $32 million domestically. Coming in number eight is Ghostbusters Afterlife with $1.1 million, now at a total of $125 million domestically and a worldwide total of $191 million. Coming in at number nine is Licorice Pizza with $1 million at the box office and now has $8 million international, or excuse me, $8 million domestically, $268,000 internationally for a worldwide total of $8,467,000. And then rounding out the top 10 at the 10th spot is the Lady Gaga starring vehicle House of Gucci, which grossed another $632,000 and now has $50 million domestically, $77 million internationally for a worldwide total of $127.5. So that is the top five at the box office this weekend. Again, coming number 10 was House of Gucci, number nine, Licorice Pizza, number eight, Ghostbusters Afterlife, number seven, West Side Story, number six, The Matrix Resurrections, number five, American Underdog, number four, for the Kingsman, number three, the 355, number two, Sing 2, and the undisputed four-time heavyweight champion at the number one spot once again is Spider-Man No Way Home. So what do you guys think of this week's top 10? Do you think Scream could knock off our champion this weekend at the box office? Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. 
moving away now from the box office this weekend to move on to something else that went under the radar for good reasons and reasons that we'll talk about right now, of course, and that is Hollywood's supposed big night, but it wasn't the biggest party of the year as it was a oh-so-small party for a lot of people, and that was the Golden Globes. And again, there's been a lot of controversy surrounding the Hollywood Foreign Press and the Golden Globes this year that they decided, or not really them, but there was a lot of backlash to the the tactics that they utilized. There wasn't a lot of diversity within their rankings, and they got pulled for it. NBC pulled the broadcast from them. They weren't going to get any celebrities, no studios or PR teams were going to work with them. So they were really kind of left with nothing. And even they tried to invite a lot of some A-listers and, and, and celebrities. That didn't go anywhere whatsoever. They couldn't live stream it, probably due to, leg- to legality issues with NBC and the contract that they have with them. So they really resorted to just putting out the winners on Twitter. And what usually is kind of a big night where you you have the weekend to lead up to it. A lot of people are giving predictions. There was a little buzz about it, but within the awards season community, but that's pretty much it. It was very much kind of a weird stance where I was kind of just in my bed chilling, waiting for for Euphoria to start. And I was just, I had my my notifications on, on my phone for Twitter. Twitter, and I just looked it up from time to time to see what the winners for this year's award season were. And th- there's a lot of questions of whether this uh, th- whether this this will count, even though really the Golden Globes, because it is a different it is a different group of people. It is a group of international reporters, whereas the Academy is a, a group made up of people that work within the industry, and it's made up of thousands of people. Whereas the the Hollywood Foreign Press is only made up of of triple di- uh, of double digits, it's it's around seventy, maybe seventy seven to this point members. So it's very drastic, even before all this controversy swooped in. But it still gave a gauge of of some potential front runners. It, it it clarified on what the true contenders potentially are going forward. So it started to build that momentum, and it's going to be very interesting to see if really there's going to be any. Hoopla, there's going to be any buzz to build off of for some of these wins, which even though I, I, I don't think that it's going to be as big, I still think it's going to be a an effective tool when it comes to some of these winners. And I'll talk about it, especially on the film side in a little bit. But the first thing that I do want to do is talk about the television side of things. And because the, the, the Golden Globes weren't as big as they used to be, I usually have Jason on, but because it's not this big pomp and circumstance, it, we don't know if if it'll really have any kind of big meaning, like I said before, towards the rest of award season, I didn't want to have him on. But when it comes to the Screen Actors Guild, the, the Critics' Choice, the Oscar nominations, we will be having Jason back on the show to talk more award season news. But for just this one time, we're just going to kind of run through things, talk about it a little bit, and then move on from there. Especially with the, with the Screen Actors Guild nominations coming on Wednesday, we'll probably have Jason on to talk about those in the coming days as well. But for this, just going to go through it real quick and talk about the winners and the potentiality of what some of those wins could have in the Oscar season. But like I said before, we're going to start out with television real quick. 
take. And some of these give some indication of what the Emmys could do. And some of it's from the previous Emmy season. So it's a big mix. So some of them are new winners. Some of them are old winners. And we're about to see who won what. So starting off with Best Supporting Actress, the nominees were Sarah Snook for Succession, Jennifer Coolidge for The White Lotus, Caitlin Dever for Dope Sick, Annie McDowell for Made, and Hannah Waddingham for Ted Lasso. And the winner in this category was Sarah Snook for Succession. It's really happy for her. I, I said it in my review of, of Succession a couple weeks ago. I think her and Kieran Culkin were the were the standouts for this season, and she very much deserved it for what she did in this third installment. So I'm very happy for Sonera Snook and can't wait to see what else she does in succession moving forward. Then going into Best Supporting Actor, the nominees are Brett Goldstein for Ted Lasso, Mark Duplass for The Morning Show, Kieran Culkin for Succession, Billy Crudup for The Morning Show, and Oh Young-soo for Squid Game. And Squid Game struck here as Oh Young-sung won for his work in that show. Again, a show that took everyone by storm. Really happy to see it win in this category. It's really only true win of the night, even though it was nominated for multiple awards, specifically it had around three nominations for the night. It came away with this one award, so Squid Game was able to get on the board with this category. Then coming in at number, or not, excuse me, not number, but the best performance in a miniseries or television by an actress, the nominees were Jessica Chastain from Scenes from a Marriage, Cynthia Revo for Genius Aretha, Elizabeth Olsen for WandaVision, Margaret Quality for Maid, and Kate Winslet for Mayor of Easttown, and the winner of this category was Kate Winslet for mayor of Easttown. No surprise whatsoever. She won the Emmy and made sense. This was a phenomenal show when it came out last year. A phenomenal limited series, excuse me. So it, it made all the sense in the world that she would continue picking up these awards for her performance in that role. Then coming in for Best Actor in a Performance in a Miniseries or Television Film, the nominees were... Paul Bettany for WandaVision, Michael Keaton for Dope Sick, Oscar Isaac from Scenes from a Marriage, Ewan McGregor for Halston, and Tahar Rahim for The Serpent. And this is another big nomination for Tahar Rahim, who was nominated last year for work that he did in the the Mauritanian with Jodie Comer and Shailene Woodley and they loved him so much the Hollywood Foreign Press that they brought him back for what he did on The Serpent but the winner in this category was Michael Keaton for Dope Sick which I'm so happy he won this award because Michael Keaton surprised me in Dope Sick I did not know what I was expecting with this show well I knew what the story was but with some of these characters I didn't know what what we were going to get from them and Michael Keaton shocked me and surprised me which shouldn't happen because he already is a really great actor but what he did in this role he took it to another level did things I haven't seen him do before so really was impressed by him in this and I wouldn't be surprised if there's buzz for him in getting a nomination at the Emmys this year then moving on to best performances in a television series musical or comedy we're going to start out with best actress and the nominees were Hannah Edinburgh for Hacks Ellie Fanning for The Great Issa Rae for Insecure Gene Smart for Hacks and Tracy Ellis Ross for Blackish, and the winner in this category was Gene Smart for Hacks. And then moving over to Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy, the nominees were 
Anthony Anderson for Blackish, Jason Sudeikis for Ted Lasso, Nicholas Holt for The Great, Steve Martin for Only Murders in the Building, and Martin Short for Only Murders in the Building. And the winner in this category was Jason Sudeikis for Ted Lasso. Again, no surprise. He's been sweeping up every single award that he has been nominated for. So this is just the latest in that arsenal. Then moving on to Best Performances in a Television Series Drama, the nominees we're going to start out with Best Actress are... Uzu Abduba for In Treatment, Jennifer Aniston for The Morning Show, MJ Rodriguez for Pose, Christine Barsnick, excuse me, for The Good Fight, and Elizabeth Moss for The Handmaid's Tale. And the winner in this category was MJ Rodriguez for her work in the final season of Pose. And along with this win comes some history as MJ Rodriguez is the first transgender to win in this category. So again, with all the, the controversies surrounding the Hollywood foreign press, they made some history tonight in giving this award to her. I haven't watched Pose personally, but I've heard fantastic things about it. Her performance in it seems like one that is awards-worthy material. And it seems like she's been snubbed a bunch of times before, not just with the Globes, but with the Emmys and, and other award season bodies and, and other and other bodies as well. So to see her get this win is really, really significant, and I'm really happy for her. Then moving on to at Best Actor, the nominees are Brian Cox for Succession, Lee Jung-Jit for Squid Game, Billy Porter for Pose, Omar Sy for Lupin, and Jeremy Strong for Succession. And surprise, surprise, Kendall Roy strikes again as Jeremy Strong wins for his role in this show. And again, well-deserved. It's always going to be a who who is going to win this category. Is it Brian Cox? Is it Jeremy Strong? And uh, again, I do think out of the two performances, both are phenomenal, but Jeremy Strong just brings it to another level in, in just every season, and he does it again with with, with season three. And again, like Snare Snook, like Kieran Culkin, like Brian Cox, I cannot wait to see what Jeremy Strong does with Kendall Roy moving forward in this show. It truly is phenomenal, and I cannot wait to see what else they do with it. Then moving on to Best Miniseries or Television Film, the nominees were The Underground Railroad, Dope Sick, Impeachment American Crime Story, Made, and Mayor of Easttown. And the winner in this category was The Underground Railroad. And, and that one surprised me a little bit because this is another one that's been getting really kind of of sideswiped a little bit within awards season or awards bodies in general. The Emmys didn't do a great job in nominating this show, but the the Hollywood Foreign Press comes through and giving this a win. I thought it would have gone to maybe Mirror of Easttown, but again, this is a show that stuck with them, and I think this is a well-worthy award for this show to win. Then moving on to the final two categories in television, we're going to end it, or one of the ending points is going to be with Best Musical or Comedy. The nominees were Hacks, The Great, Only Murders in the Building, Reservation Dogs, and Ted Lasso. And the winner for this category was Hacks. And then moving on to Best Drama, the nominees were Succession, Lupin, The Morning Show, Pose, and Squid Game. And the winner in this category, I think to really nobody's surprise whatsoever, was Succession. I, again, I've sung this show's praises so many times, and I'll do it again real quick. Great show. Check it out on HBO Max. It's it's probably the best show, arguably, on television right now. And it, it, it deserves all the awards that is coming this way, and it's probably going to happen again this upcoming Emmy season as well. So those are the winners for the television side. Now we're going to move on over 
to the movie side where, again, I'll dissect it a little bit more with this one. But coming into the Golden Globes this year, the two films that had the most nominations at the Golden Globes this year were Belfast and The Power of the Dog with seven. And then you had multiple films like Don't Look Up, Licorice Pizza, West Side Story, and King Richard coming with a four nomination. So there was a, few, a little bit of a gap between Belfast, The Power of the Dog, and the rest of the rest of the categories. But it was really two films that came away big winners tonight at the Golden Globes on the film side. So we're going to start off with talking about that. And we're going to start off with the category for best non-English film. And the nominees in this category were Drive My Car from Japan, Compartment Number 6 from Finland, The Hand of God from Italy, A Hero from Iran, and Parallel Mothers from Spain. And uh, again, these Categories and the Golden Globes are a gauge to the temperature of the room for what we could potentially start solidifying as front runners, what could be a surprise that we might have to focus in on. It just gives us an idea. And this is one of those ones where I think we can solidify that Drive My Car is probably a big contender when it comes to the international category at during award season because Drive My Car has been winning a lot of critics awards and a lot of circles and a lot of societies and winning this Golden Globe I think cements its status as one to really look out for. I thought Parallel Mothers could have been a winner here as as well, but I think Drive My Car seems to be the favorite for a lot of people right now, so the momentum is clearly on this film side. I definitely want to check it out. I believe this is a almost three-and-a-half-hour, four-hour movie, and I really don't know anything about it, but I, I've been trying to check it out, trying to find somewhere that I could watch it and, and see for myself how great this film is. And this is one that people... This isn't just a film that's winning the international categories. For films like the LA for, Critics Society, Society, it's winning Best Picture. So this is one that maybe could be one that gets one of those 10 spots in the Beck's Picture race. We'll see what happens in the next coming weeks before Oscar morning nominations, but definitely a, a, another win for this film. Then coming in for Best Animated Feature, the nominees were Encanto, Flea, Luca, My Sunny Mod, and Raya and the Last Dragon. And the winner for this category, I think to nobody's surprise really, was Encanto, especially since Mitchell versus the Machines wasn't in here. I think if you if that's in this category, I think it's a it's a little bit more competition. So we still have to see how that fares. I think the Annie Awards will give us a better idea of which one could be the front runner. But again, you can't count out Disney whatsoever. Encanto is a film that is just phenomenal. It's been, it's getting more and more and more momentum in the last couple of weeks because of its soundtrack and, and, a, and a few of its songs. So this is one that could very well take the race because of the momentum that it's building because of the soundtrack and the film in general, even months after it came out in theaters. So we'll see what happens, but I think this is going to become a race, a two-way race between Encanto and Mitchell versus the Machines to take that Oscar gold. Then coming in at number, or excuse me, not number, but coming in for best original song, the nominees were No Time to Die from Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell from the movie No Time to Die, Be Alive from Beyonce and Dixon from King Richard, Dos Ogritis from Lin-Manuel Miranda in Encanto, Down to Joy from Van Morrison from the film Belfast, and Here I Am Singing from My Home, Jamie Hartman, Jennifer Hudson, and Carol King from the film Respect. And this went to No Time to Die winning the award. So once again, James Bond 007 strikes at 
the award circuit. And again, I know a lot of people are putting some momentum into Encanto songs or even into Be Alive because it's from Beyonce. But again, with the track history for a Bond song, the, the last two Bond films in 2015 and also in 2012, Adele and Sam Smith, they both went on to win Oscar gold. I still take this song as a front runner. I think Billie Eilish could be very, very well be on her way to Oscar gold. We'll see what happens, but this is definitely my front runner. And I think these wins are starting to prove that as well. Moving on to best original score, the nominees were Hans Zimmer from Dune, Alexandra Desplat for The French Dispatch, Jermaine Franco from Encanto, Johnny Greenwood for The Power of the Dog, and Alberto Iglesias for Parallel Mothers. And this one went to Hans Zimmer for Dune. Uh, Again, this is to me uh, no surprise whatsoever. I think... This is again another front runner to for the Oscars. It's definitely a front runner to get nominated. I think the score from Dune is one that is just it's on another level. It's it's not just it doesn't just help up the ante and, and help just improve the movie. It's a part of the theatrical experience. I think without that score, especially when you go when you went into the theater to see Dune, it just added a different layer to it that without it, it might not be the same experience. So I think this is very much going to be a major, major player, and no surprise that Hans Zimmer took this one for Dune. Now moving into Best Screenplay, and again, the the Golden Globes don't do original or adapted, they just do one category, combining all of them together, and these are the nominees and the winner they chose for this category. And the nominees for Best Screenplay were... Kenneth Branagh from Belfast, Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza, Jane Champion for The Power of the Dog, Adam McKay for Don't Look Up, and Aaron Sorkin for Being the Ricardos. And the winner in this one is Kenneth Branagh for Belfast. And this would be the only award that Belfast would win tonight. I think that surprised a lot of people, and it could indicate the momentum that this film is having. But a big win, though, for Kenneth Branagh, I think, because this is a movie that has a really good screenplay. It's a British screenplay. Again, Hollywood Foreign Press. It makes sense why they would choose it. So I am no no shock that this went on to win it, especially when you look at the other scripts. I think Licorice Pizza has some fun with the script, but it's not tightly compacted. I think Power of the Dog, it's more of a visual sense than it is on, on, on the pages. I think Don't Look Up, I think that one has some misses within the screenplay that might not work for it. The only competition it had was probably from Aaron Sorkin from Being the Ricardos, but Kenneth Branagh, Belfast, I can agree with that and put that on there as well. Then moving on to Best Director, the nominees were Jane Champion for The Power of the Dog, Kenneth Branagh for, from, for Belfast, excuse me, Maggie Gyllenhaal for The Lost Daughter, Steven Spielberg for West Side Story, and Denny Villeneuve for Dune. And the winner in this category was Jane Champion for The Power of the Dog. And I think there were a few true frontrunners in major categories, above-the-line categories that were made tonight. And I'll get to the other two in the next couple. Of, of minutes, but in the directing category was one of them where Jane Champion has been winning every single award left to right. And again, I think this just helped to solidify the momentum that she is the true frontrunner, not just to be a, no- a nomination, but to win the Oscar for best director and really be the perennial frontrunner and just the dominant favorite 
in that category. Again, for Maggie Gyllenhaal to get a nomination for a first-time director, amazing. I think she'll be in this for a long time to come. Steven Spielberg, I mean, listen, West Side Story is my is my favorite movie of 2021, so I would love to see him continue on as well. I think this is going to be the group for the most part that we'll see get nominations in the Best Directing category at the Oscars. However, again, with that, that category is always finicky, so there's definitely going to be some surprises and punches pulled on that one, but I do think Jane Champion is going to be one that we'll be seeing on that list come Oscar morning. Now moving on to the acting categories, we're going to start out with the supporting performances. I'm going to start out with Best Supporting Actress, and the nominees were Ariana DeBoe for West Side Story, excuse me, Katrina Balfi for Belfast, Kristen Dunst for The Power of the Dog, Anjanoon Ellis for King Richard, and Ruth Nega for Passing, and the winner of this category went to Ariana DeBoe for West Side Story, and this is, again, another one like Jane Champion to me who has been winning a lot of the awards when you look at the critics' circles and societies that in the wins she has had. She has about eight of them. I think it's a little bit more than that now. She leads the pack, so I think this helps again solidify that she is the the front runner when you put people on the list she is number one on there and I think it's it's incredible in the fact that Anita could very well win two Oscar performances from two different people in two different generations it could very well happen again it's still very early in the race there's going to be a lot more a lot more momentum changes and, and surprises that happen but right now I think Ariana DeBose is going to be the one that is the front runner at this point she very much well deserves it she makes Anita her own this is one category that I'm personally rooting for to win I think she has the best shot out of anybody in West Side Story especially in the cast or crew or even the picture itself to win some, something for this movie. So I'm personally cheering for her to win it. I think she made this character her own. She brought her own spunk and pizzazz and really made it iconic in her own way and differentiated it between what Rita Moreno did in 61 and, and what Ariana DeBeau was able to do in 2021. Moving on to Best Supporting Actor, in a supporting motion picture. The nominees are Cody Smith-McPhee for The Power of the Dog, Ben Affleck for The Tender Bar, Jamie Dorian for Belfast, Sierra Hins for Belfast, and Tony Kirster for, or Troy Coaster, excuse me, for Coda. And the winner in this category, to no surprise to me, was Cody Smith-McPhee. Like Ariana DeBoe, like Jane Champion, he is another one who's been racking it up when it comes to all these precursor wins. And I think Cody Smith McPhee is one of the front runners to put on this list as well as I as I think he deserves it because even though Benedict Cumberbatch has been getting a lot of praise and, and love for his role, he was amazing. Same thing with Kirsten Dunn. Same thing with Jesse Plemons. I do think that Cody Smith McPhee brought the best performance out of everybody in that film. I think just think he he does something else with that role and is able to perform it in a way that is mysterious. Yet when you look at the character from the beginning of the power of the dog to the ending it's a great transformation and i think he very much well deserves it from the expressions he's able to give from the dialogue and conversations between kirsten dunce and benedict cumberbatch it's really a great acting job and one that i hope cody smith continues to get more exposure to that led to some great roles for him to come down the line moving on to the lead acting categories in musical or comedy moving to best actress first 
The nominees for Best Actress were Marion Cotillard for Annette, Alana Hyam for Licorice Pizza, Rachel Zegler for West Side Story, Jennifer Lawrence for Don't Look Up, and Emma Stone for Cruella. And the winner in this category was Rachel Zegler for West Side Story, playing Maria. And at 20 years old, she is the youngest winner at the Golden Globes. And what a performance she delivers in this, of course. And this is her first major role in anything. I mean, she was just doing high school plays at her at her school before she got cast as Maria. So this is her first major, major, major performance. And she delivers and she deserves to win this award in musical or comedy. The only one that I thought could have given her some competition here was Alana Hyam, who I believe, if you're looking at the fifth spot at Best Actress, just overall at the Oscars, I do believe that it's between the fifth spot. You have someone like a Penelope Cruz. You have somebody like Rachel Zegler and Alana Hyam vying for that spot right now. So I think for her, this is a great this is a great award for her. I think this is very much could potentially help her in moving the stick for the SAGs and, and the and other awards bodies down the line. But again, if it doesn't happen, I think this is a great start for her and she's going to be in multiple big high profile projects coming down the pipeline. She's a great performer and I cannot wait to see what else she does, but she very much well deserved this. I'm very happy for her and hopefully we see more of her during this award season so she can actually give a speech because if there's one thing that I truly did miss from the body was seeing a lot of these speeches happen and especially with a lot of these performers that won I would have loved to see them give something so hopefully with the SAGs they get nominations and if they win we get to see some great speeches that we weren't able to see at the Golden Globes last night then coming in for best performance in a motion picture comedy musical musical or comedy excuse me by an actor the nominees were Andrew Garfield for Tick Tick Boom Leonardo DiCaprio for Don't Look Up Peter Dinklage for Sierra, Cooper Hoffman for Licorice Pizza, and Anthony Ramos for In the Heights. And this is another one that was a no-brainer. Probably the one performance that I am personally invested in seeing win everything, and that is Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom. He won the Golden Globe. First time ever winning a Golden Globe. Very much well-deserved. He gave, I said it on Twitter last night, a tour de force performance as Jonathan Larson. Probably my favorite performance of the entire year of 2021, if I'm being honest with you. And I hope, I know it's going to be a, a match between him and the person who won Best Supporting, not Best Supporting, but Best Actor in a Drama, who I'll talk about in just a second. But I think it's between him and Andrew Garfield for the Oscars, it's going to become, it's going to come down to the wire. It's probably going to come down to the SAG, depending on if both of them are nominated. So we'll see what happens there. But a great win for Andrew Garfield. And hopefully we get to see him down the line as well, getting recognition for this performance. And then moving into the final two acting categories of the night, the nominations for best performance in a motion picture drama by an actress. The nominees were Nicole Kidman for Being the Ricardos, Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter, Lady Gaga for House of Gucci, and Kristen Stewart for Spencer. And this was probably the surprise of the night as the winner went to Nicole Kimmon playing Lucille Ball and being the Ricardos. I, I thought, a lot of people probably thought that Kristen Stewart was going to win this award. And usually the, the Golden Globes will have a surprise or two that you just have to 
the, it, it probably will not happen. It probably doesn't mean anything. It's just them giving this award to that person. So I think that's going to be the case here. I still would put Kristen Stewart in the front runner spot to not just be nominated, but to win the to the to win the Oscar. As of right now, I think she is the clear front runner. But I would probably put Olivia Coleman even above Nicole Kidman for the number two spot. I do think that Nicole Kidman is definitely going to get a nomination potentially at the Oscars. However, I uh, see her winning this award is a surprise. I think it's a very well-earned surprise because I thought Nicole Kidman did an outstanding job bringing Lucille Ball to life, but I just don't think she's going to be the front runner when all is said and done for what we're ultimately leading up to at the Dolby Theater in a couple months, but she very much will be, I think, a nominee, but not a front runner to win it. But this is a nice win, a surprise win, and one I think people are fine with and not up in arms about her winning this for this role because it's Nicole Kidman. You can never get mad at Nicole Kidman. And she did an outstanding job as Lucille Ball. So a surprise, but a very nice surprise to see her win Best Actress. And then the final performance in a motion picture drama for Best Actor, the nominees were Will Smith for King Richard, Mahershala Ali for Swan Song, Javier Bardem for Being the Ricardos, Benedict Cumberbatch for The Power of the Dog, and Denzel Washington for The Tragedy of Macbeth. And this is one that was... A, a tad bit surprising because I think the well the award went to Will Smith who won for King Richard but Will Smith has kind of lost a little momentum the last couple of months really and it's got kind of gone to Benedict Cumberbatch because he's won a lot of the precursors but Will Smith has always been in that conversation and now with now winning these major awards he very well could get back into that conversation which is why I think because Andrew Garfield has been winning some of these as well, these best acting categories and the precursors. I do think that it's going to be between him, Will Smith, and Andrew Garfield for that Oscar gold in the very end. I do think that when you look at the number two spot or the number three, really, the Dark Horse, I think Benedict Cumberbatch will be in that spot when all is said and done. But it's really going to be between that circle of guys that are going to potentially win it. But for Will Smith to see this, a very needed win and a win that I think gets him back into the momentum conversation in winning this award to get people noticing it it once again moving on to the final two categories though of the night it is the best picture categories and again with the golden globes it's drama and then musical or comedy and actually this year they did pretty well in both of these categories and it's i really like both wins for these two categories so to move on to the first one which will be best motion picture in a musical or comedy the nominees were West Side Story, Sierno, Don't Look Up, Licorice Pizza, and Tick, Tick, Boom. And the winner of this category went to West Side Story, which I couldn't be more happy about. If, if there could be a consolation prize, it would probably go to Tick, Tick, Boom. But it, West Side Story is a phenomenal picture. It's one that deserves to be seen by so many people. It is a surprise of a masterpiece of a movie. Steven Spielberg does an incredible job. And again, this just keeps the momentum going for this movie when it comes to Oscar season. And then moving to Best Drama, the nominees were Power of the Dog, Belfast, Coda, Dune, and King Richard. And for the first time ever, a Netflix film takes the best picture drama category in The Power of the Dog being its representation. And The Power of the Dog has been having a great early start to award season so far. And this just continues it. And the question does come up, can... 
power of the dog be the one that finally pushes Netflix over the table of not just being a contender, but a front runner in winning Best Picture? Because for everyone that knows, and if you don't know, Netflix wants Best Picture. They want that Best Picture Oscar badly. They wanted it for years. That's why when you see all these prestigious films come out, it's not just for reviews. It's not just for views or reviews. or They want the accolades. They want to be able to be recognized by these prestigious voting bodies. It just happened this past year with the Emmys where they finally won Best Picture, not, not Best Picture, but Best series drama and they won it for the crown the crown was representative for that and could that very well be what happens this year for this movie we'll see what happens we'll see if that's the case but it's looking like power of the dog could be a very serious contender right now so those were all the winners and nominees for the golden globes this year again power of the dog and west side story come away with the most wins tying it at three apiece, and we'll see where that momentum goes for here. The next big awards body is going to be the Screen Actors Guild. They are doing their nominations on Instagram on Wednesday morning, so I'll hope to probably have a podcast special episode about that in the days after, if not the week after, depending on what my schedule looks like, but I will definitely be doing my reactions on Twitter when you want to see that as well. So definitely, the this is only the beginning of award season, and even though it was very much a a subdued Golden Globe ceremony, if you even want to call it that. I think it'll be very interesting to see if these wins have any status whatsoever or if it will, as it usually does, come down to the guilds. So we'll see what happens, but uh, I really like the winners. Even with all the controversy surrounding the HFPA, I did like a lot of the winners that they did choose. And hopefully because of... All the all the events they were stripped down of, it's usually a lot of influence, and, and that led to the downfall for the HFPA, one of the things that led to their downfall. And hopefully they actually watch these movies, they watch the shows as well, and these are legitimately their true beliefs of what they think are the best films, performances, and and technical aspects for all of these movies and all these nominees. But we'll see where this leads to. This is only the beginning of award season, and we still got a long ways to go. What did you think about the Golden Globes this weekend? Did you did you even follow them? Did you not follow them? What did you do? Let me know down below and leave your thoughts. Now, moving on from the Golden Globes, and I want to talk about a big film, and I already kind of talked about it a little bit at the box office, and that is the the big film coming out this weekend in the fifth installment in the Scream franchise, simply titled Scream. And it's kind of like Halloween, when Halloween came out in 2018, where when you talk about the Scream movie, you basically put next to it 2022, so people know that you're not talking about the 1996 film that came out. But this is a, a brand new film. It, it has old cast members like Nev Campbell coming back, Courtney Cox, Dave Arquette, the big three. But then you have some newcomers like Melissa Barrera from In the Heights. You have you have Dylan, Dylan uh, excuse me, Dylan McDermott from. 13 Reasons Why coming into this. You have so many people, Jenna Ortega also, some really big newcomers, some new fresh blood that is coming into this 
franchise who if they stick around for a long period of time or not who knows but this it is a bunch of new fresh faces to go alongside the legends that have been a part of this since the very beginning many many years later and there's been a lot of conversation of do we need this right now the fourth one that came out in 2011 didn't do so well why do we need this and i think the big confidence in it, it again is in the creators who are really really taking the the bull by the horn with this one and want to give it some some brand new life in the end with this and it comes from the the filmmakers from Ready or Not who did I think delivered a fun entertaining horror thriller flick when it came out in 2019 and I think that they have a passion for this hearing the stories that they sent Nev Kemble a letter talking about how much they adored Wes Craven, how much he inspired them to do what they do. And, and that really got to her and attracted her to come back and playing Sidney Prescott once once again. And, and you also have the the, the the people from Radio Silence who are the writers as well. The, it seems like they're really giving it their all with this. And you have some, so if you have the great talent behind the screen and, and in the director's chairs, and you already have some great talent in front of the camera, then I think you can give some good recipes for this. And the thing with a horror film, as it's really been proven is, even though you want the scares and the thrills, you also have to be able to have a good story. And I think with some of these revivals, they've been able to tell a good story, mixing in nostalgia, but but putting in some good witty humor in there, putting in some good storylines and some good character developments. And I think that's what people we're hoping for with this screen film and it seems like for the most part they have delivered so going over some of these reviews and reactions from the film real quick we're going to start out with talking about eric davis who was our good friend over at fandango who's the managing editor this is what he had to say about the brand new screen film after he saw it the new screen film is a blast and my favorite since the original. There's some sharp writing here, a nice balance of well-crafted scares, and amusing commentary on modern horror. It also pokes fun, a lot of fun at itself too, while remaining a bloody whodunit and a damn good time. I'm a fan. Then moving on over to the one and only Steve Frosty Weintraub, who is over at Collider. This is what he had to say about the film. The new Scream is the real deal. Such a well-written script that keeps you guessing and wades into the treacherous waters of fandom in 2022. Scream fans are going to love it. Then moving on over to another Collider member, Perry Nemiroff, who is, if you follow her, she is a very, 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 very big Scream fan. So she was really looking forward to this one. This is what she had to say about it. I have seen the new Scream and it's a winner. Yes, it's bloody, but also feels loaded with love and reverence for the original and the fandom it mass and I and felt like it was talking to me to a degree super impressed by the how they weave the OG cast and new ensemble together and the purpose of it some really creative and interesting ideas in the mix here that I no doubt will obsess over via many many viewings and then moving on over down to some other people that were able to see the film going on over to Eric Anderson from Awards Watch he said I loved Scream. It pokes fun at itself, elevated horror, and has a lot to say about movie fandom. It leans deep into legacy in the right ways and uses the Scream family to great and surprising effect. New crew is excellent too, especially Jenna Ortega. Then Kevin McCarthy says, The fifth Scream film is the closest I felt to the brilliant excitement and horror of Wes Craven's 1996 masterpiece. Hands down, the best Scream since the original beautifully honors the legacy of the first film while bringing a fresh yet brutal new tone to the franchise. And then Jake Hamilton from over at Fox 5 Chicago had this to say, 
As someone who worshipped the original Scream movie and absolutely adores Scream 2, I have to tell you, I absolutely loved the new Scream sequel. It's directed with such furious energy, and it's both a love letter to the original and entirely fresh, I am beyond ecstatic. And again, the list goes on and on for people that saw it and reacted to it, but that's just some of the gist of what I've heard, and I trust those people's opinions really, really close to my heart. I really do look at them when I look at reviews to see if they'll line up with me, and for the most part, I line up with their thoughts and and what they believe. So for me, I'm really excited about this. And one of the great things about Scream was how different it was from other horror films and how it changed the horror genre and being very much a meta narrative on movies and movie fandom and pop culture and the horror movie genre itself. And that's what made it such a brilliant movie in 1996. And even some of this, especially the sequel like Scream 2, it was able to continue that that meta narrative that I think continues to this day really. And if you're able to to talk about that and movie fandom while incorporating it into this movie while continuing to be like a, a whodunit, a guessing game, a horror film, it, it, that, that's incredible. And again, it goes to the writing and the passion people, the, the, the people that are making this have for wanting to tell this story. And it seems like they love this franchise. They wanted to do justice. And it seems like they were able to do just that. So I'm really excited about this. Again, I'm not the biggest horror fan in the world, but, but when I am excited for something, I will strap my boots together and go see it no matter what and I'm definitely going to be doing that with this new Scream film when it comes out this Friday or you can check it out on when the Thursday night preview screenings happen as well so are you guys going to go see this when reading these reviews did they increase your interest in going to see it was it the same as it was before seeing these reviews or did they somehow go down with a lot of these positive reactions let me know down below and leave your thoughts and then moving on now from the Horrorverse over to the DCEU. Now, DC is really ramping up to have after kind of having a quiet 2021 where they still had Zack Snyder's Justice League and the Suicide Squad, it's not compared to the kind of year they're about to have where they're just about ready to launch their first television show on HBO Max with Peacemaker, but they also have five, not five, excuse me, four movies in the works to come out this year. That includes The Batman, Black Adam, Aquaman, The Lost Kingdom, and probably the one that I think is flying under the radar but also somehow the fandom's most anticipated for various different reasons and that is the flash movie which has been in production purgatory for years but over the last two or so years has finally been able to come out of the woodwork has gone through production is in post-production right now we're finally getting this thing coming out in november and there's a lot of things that are going to be happening with it it's going to be taking place within the d the dc's version of the multiverse it's going to be telling a story about the flash but it's also going to be introducing us to a supergirl we're going to be getting two different versions of batman one played by michael keaton and the other one played by the one and only ben affleck that has kind of been the main dceu batman since he was in batman v superman in 2016 but we've known for a long time that ever since Justice League, Ben Affleck is no longer really attached to playing the Cape Crusader. However, he did come back to shoot some stuff for Zack Snyder's director's cut of Justice League. 
and he did surprisingly come back after it was announced in 2020 that he'll be coming back for The Flash in some kind of small role. And we don't know what the hell is going to happen. We don't know is 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 Ben Affleck's version going to die and then that'll bring in Michael Keaton's version to kind of come in by the end. What's going to happen? And we still don't know anything, but Ben Affleck has come out to talk a little bit more about his time as Batman. And we've gotten multiple interviews with him throughout the last couple of years of, of what he truly thought of playing Batman. And we found out that it really wasn't all sunshine and rainbows as maybe we thought it was going to be. And there were a lot of indications that led to that. Of course, the big one being that he was supposed to really direct his version of Batman and that was going to be the big thing and that fell apart and then once that fell apart there were a lot of speculation of is he actually going to come back and play this role what's going to happen and then of course what was supposed to be his Batman has now turned into what Matt Reeves is doing alongside Robert Pattinson and that's going to become its own little corner of the DC multiverse and it'll be its own little Batman universe that they're crafting with that movie and hopefully that little franchise that they're hoping to make with that movie coming out in March. But that's not about that. This is about Ben Affleck's experience with this. And and, and and really after that, you knew that there was more to the story than meets the eye. And then, and then over the last couple of years, we've gotten leaks and reports about what truly went on with the production of Justice League before Zack Snyder's tragedy and then after Zack Snyder's tragedy with his daughter and when Josh Whedon came into, into the frame. And we've, of course, heard from Ray Fisher and, 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 and his experiences. And Gal Gadot is kind of dabbled in interviews about her time and of course that big Hollywood Reporter article came out after the Snyder Cut did around April of last year we really got a full glimpse of what was happening but we we'd never really heard from we'd never really heard from Jason Momoa but he's kind of come out in subtle ways and, and, and supported Ray Fisher and everything that he's been doing in the wake of his experience with Josh Whedon on the Justice League set but we've never really heard any full details for him and the same thing with Ben Affleck where he's talked about not wanting to play the character anymore for himself but he hasn't really talked about the experience of Justice League. Well, in promoting his new film, The Tender Bar, he's getting those questions again. And and he's talked about playing the experience on Justice League, but also talking about the fact that he is playing Batman again. But it's, it's, it's for... This final time, and he did confirm that The Flash is the last time he will be playing the Batman, and he had some really interesting uh, some really interesting tidbits about his experience playing this Cape Crusader one last time, that maybe, after all the times he's played it, he finally got it down pat in his final rodeo with the character, and this is what he had to say. I've never said this, this is hot off the presses, but my favorite scenes in terms of Batman and the interpretation of Batman that I have done were in the Flash movie. I hope they maintain the integrity of what we did because I thought it was great and really interesting, different, but not in a way that is encouraging with the character. Who knows? Maybe they will decide that it doesn't work, but when I went and did it, it was really fun and really, really satisfying and encouraging, and I thought, wow, I think I finally figured it out. And he did go on to say also in, in this interview that working on the Snyder Cut and the Flash movie were were nice finishing kind of homages and touches to his character. And to me, uh, again, I'm just I'm happy to to really hear that from him. And the fact that he a came back to do this after not wanting to and the experiences he's had in not doing this 
and he had fun with it and he enjoyed it and he felt with peace. And I think that was the one thing that we always thought that we were never going to get. And now is peace with this character because if we were to go on to do another Batman film or we were going to get Batman appearances outside of what Matt Reeves is doing and we left alone what happened with Ben Affleck's character, then it would just felt off. So I'm happy he's able to get some kind of resolution and peace with this, and especially after everything that he went through with Justice League, which he, again, like I said before, he did talk about his experience with Justice League, and this is what he had to say about experiencing the overall production of what that entire time was like. Justice League was a bad experience because of a, con- a confluence of things. My own life, my divorce, being away too much, the competing agendas, and then Zack's personal tragedy and the reshooting. It was awful. It was everything I didn't like about this. It was just the worst experience. That became the moment when I said, I'm not doing this anymore. And then he went to talking about not directing the Batman and, and how it went from the experience of Justice League to what were, were rumors for piling up for so long that it seems like he was off and on again about directing Batman and then news came out that he wasn't directing Batman and he gives his reasons for, for why that turned out to be the case. I looked at it and thought, I'm not going to be happy about doing this. The person who does this should love it. You're supposed to always want these things and I probably would have loved doing it at 32 or something, but it was it was the point where I started to realize it's not worth it. And uh, again, I think for Ben Affleck, he realized that with these big budgeted productions, there there come expectations, there come pressure. And, and it seems like he just couldn't deal with it in that moment. And again, I respect him for that. And uh, I, I just think that, again, the fact that he is able to find peace with it now and move on is great. And I, I'm somebody who, after seeing especially Zack Snyder's Justice League, I want Ben Affleck to come back. I, I want him to do more Batman. But again, we're, it's just it's just a piece of IP. It, it, it is a character. And and as much as I love the Batman character, people that go that that work on these things are humans there they have lives and i think that's what we get lost in the fandom sometimes where we always say oh we want this or we want that and we need this we need that but there's a lot that goes into these things and sometimes the pressure of it all gets to people and it clearly got to ben affleck and again i i would love to see him continue his stuff but if he doesn't want to continue it then i just have to accept that and move on and know that we're we're getting multiple new batman properties we're not just getting more michael keaton batman it seems like but we're going to be getting a batgirl and we're going to have our own corner of the of the universe where it's all Batman with what Matt Reeves is doing, then it kind of goes to what Ben Affleck was saying where, again, I think if Ben Affleck was 100% in like he was when he probably first signed on with Batman v Superman, we would have gotten a great Batman. But we got Matt Reeves and it seems like Matt Reeves loves Batman. He loves the comics. He loves the world, the universe that's created just within the Dark Knight. And you can see that. And again, in the way that he talked about a DC fandom, both times in the trailers, this guy knows the character in the universe and I can't wait to see what he does so you can understand where Ben Affleck's coming from and I think that's what he talks about when you look at the Batman and you look at all these other things that are happening within DC you need to have people that are passionate about it and, and want to do it because again it is a grueling process and there's going to be a lot of eyes on you and it's not it's like being 
in a sporting event where you, you're going to have this pressure on you. The, the comic book genre is the biggest in the world right now. So there, there's a lot of pressures that come with it. And if you're not up to it, you're not. it's not going to be a great time. And and so I think Ben Affleck realized that and and he was able to, again, find peace with these last few performances. And, and he's happy with what he did in The Flash. And again, I'm excited to see what he does, what kind of story we get with his Batman and, and, and how it all kind of comes to a, to a conclusion for him. So again, I'm really Really happy that we got the time that we did with, with Ben Affleck's Batman. It's it's unfortunate that we're not going to get more, but I cannot wait to cherish the last time we get to see him in November and cherish what he did in, in Zack Snyder's Justice League and Batman v Superman and, and the contributions he made to the character. And, and I loved him in Batman. I, I truly, truly did. I think he delivered probably my favorite Batman so far. And I can't wait to see what Robert Pattinson does, but I wish we got more Batman from Ben Affleck, but what we got, I will love forever and ever. And and, I, and again, I can't wait to see what he does in The Flash film. What do you guys think about these comments from Ben Affleck in regards to playing Batman and that, that this is his final time playing the Batman when he is in The Flash film? Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. And the final thing that I want to talk about on the Sam Bissell podcast today is a little thing that happened over the weekend in the wonderful world of Disney, specifically Pixar Studios. And it came out that the next Pixar film, Turning Red, will not be debuting in theaters like it was supposed to be doing, but instead it will follow the last two movies from Pixar and debuting solely on Disney Plus. And that's not really the big storyline to come from this. Again, you can attribute it to Omicron and the pandemic right now. But the big sad story about this whole thing is once again, Pixar Studios gets the short end of the stick. And, and that should not be happening. You, there, there's been some great articles from Insider that have detailed the 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 sadness and the annoyance from Pixar employees that they're the ones that are going straight to streaming after being told that they were getting a theatrical release and then it gets taken away from them and all this time that you think you're making something for the big screen even though people are still going to see it there it's not being employed for that specific reason and the big the big annoyance to all this, and, and I attribute it to, to Bob Chapek once again, this is a blunder on his part and other executives over at Disney right now, and this makes me nervous, is that you're alienating studios within your organization now. Because when you look at the other properties that are in the Disney umbrella, they have all gotten day and date releases at least on Disney Plus. And I'm not somebody that is a big fan of the Premier Access $30. $30. I, I don't think that was a smart move and I think they might realize that and I don't think they're going to employ that. They could for all I know in the future, but they, they I don't think they're going to employ that a lot more than they did because of everything that happened with, with Black Widow. I, I think they're going to be more careful about how they go about incorporating that into into their films that they do do that but still I'm, i was never a big fan of it i continue not to be a big fan of it however i would still rather give that option to pixar studios and their movies instead of just going exclusively on disney plus for free and the only thing you have to do is pay the the fee or, or the, the annual subscription of around 7.99 a month that is that that is ridiculous and it showcases to Pixar who has given the studio of Disney not millions billions of dollars at the box office they are a main contributor to Walt Disney World 
and Disney Studios because it's not just box office. They give them accolades. They give them awards prestige. Almost every single year a Pixar movie is out for the most part. They are the true front runners and nine times out of ten will win the Oscar for Best Animated Feature. So Disney is, is stacking up not Oscars both from their animation studios but also from Pixar. And it's it's just it's mind-boggling that a studio gives you so much and this is how you repay them. And you give your own animation studio, you give your own studio, you give Marvel Studios the courtesy of a day-and-date release or an all-exclusive theatrical release, but you won't do it for Pixar. Or like you did with Encanto, where you come out in theaters for a couple weeks and then you go and then you go to streaming as well. You don't even give them that. And and so that to me is the is the annoyance of all of this is that you you have to realize that you're not being fair. It's 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 not it's a parody basically where where one studio is being looked down on pod differently than your other studios and arguably maybe other than Marvel Studios, Pixar is your most lucrative franchise and, and, and company that you hold. So if you're not treating them the right way, then then then. What are you going to do? I mean, what is this going to do for, for Peter Doctor and the employees over at Pixar when they're not like, like, are you going to sour a relationship over this? And so to me, that's on uh, that's again on Bob Chapek and, and the executives over at Disney that they need to that they need to wake up and smell the coffee and, and get on the same page with Pixar. And I hope this means that Lightyear is not next because I don't think it will be because Lightyear is it has the brand name established Buzz Lightyear from the Toy Story universe even though it's something else you it's more marketable and probably different in a way that you could gain a little bit more out of the out of the theatrical element of it but still can you imagine the creators that were working on turning red all this time you're working on it you're you're, you're gearing up for a theatrical release and again it's understandable with covid still surging right now but when this comes out on March 11th I don't think it's going to be as bad as it is right now so why put it on Disney Plus if anything again put it day and date and I'm not again I'm not a big fan of that but give them that you're not even you're saying to them basically we do not think you're worth the $30 your movies are not worth people paying $30 for we think they're worth that they only have to pay their annual Disney Plus subscription that's it they're not your your movies are not worth going to the movie theaters for. Your movies are not worth going to the movies and then putting it on on, on streaming when it's all said and done. And that's got to be demoralizing for the people working over there. And they've said it in reports that it's demoralizing. And so you got to be able – and this is, again, on Bob Chapik, and this is what concerns me about the guy is that he's going to neglect some of these places, whereas Bob Iger was a man of the talent, a man that 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 knew the importance of creativeness. And you're going to basically – especially for people as creative as they are on Pixar, fall by the wayside. And you cannot let that happen whatsoever. So again, I, I hope that they wake up and smell the coffee and they do something about this and that they are at least fair in being able to share amongst all their studios. Because they all play well together now, but they're all different studios. And you understand that something like Marvel Studios is the cream of the crop. They can do whatever they want. But between Lucasfilm and, and, and Disney Animation and Disney Studios and Pixar, they all have to play on even, even playing fields when it comes to releases like that. So, uh, again, it's I, I don't know where this is going to go, but I, I, I cannot imagine how people over in Pixar are feeling right now about this. I, I, it's 
got to be demoralizing, like it says in reports. It has to be a, a, a backbreaker for them of just all this work. And, and they're still going to come out with great work, but you're gearing up for a big theatrical release. All you're doing is for this, and then you find out, that's oh, just going to go to streaming. You know, it's, it's, it's just going to, you know, we're just going to chalk it up to that. You guys don't deserve a theatrical release. You guys don't deserve a day and date. Yeah, none of that. I, I can only imagine what it feels like to put all that work and then realize that you're still going to be it's going to be put out there, but eh, we're going to put it on streaming. It's, it, it's not worth the, the, the big screen theatrical release for you guys. People can just see it on their small screens. It's fine. I can't. I can't imagine. It just. It just. It just irks me. And to me, that's the big story to take away from this. Not that it's going to day and date or uh, into streaming, but again, the the fact that it's happened to them three straight times on three great movies, especially Soul. I would love to see Soul. And again, I understand, especially at that time, it, it was it was December 2020. The pandemic was especially at a big peak at that time. You you had to put it on Disney Plus, but. I would have loved to see that in theaters or even Luca. Luca was something I would have loved to see in theaters with that animation and the style they put into that town of Italy. Oh man, I would have loved it. And the same thing with Turning Red. But alas, we'll just have to check it out on Disney+. Plus. What do you guys think about this news regarding Turning Red going over to Disney+, Plus? the latest film from Pixar to move over straight to streaming instead of doing a day and date release or theatrical only? Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. But that down and out of the way, that will do it for this edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast. Once again, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to check out my channel for more content. You can check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and much more. Also, make sure to tune in on to the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, and be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on there, such as You Mad Bro, the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, check out goal-driven professionals geared toward improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. Also, check out The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson, giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. Also, along the way, make sure to check out these other amazing shows on the Podcast Solutions, such as Wrestle Attic Radio, Fretzelmania Podcast, and Midnight Showing. You can check these out and so much more on the website, ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com, also on Facebook and Twitter, at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Canopy Treehouse, use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, when you get a chance, make sure to follow me on social media. You can find me on Twitter, at Bissell Samuel. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And also on Facebook, at Sam Bissell. And you can also check out my YouTube channel, at The Sam Bissell Podcast. So, once again, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, keep on screening.